0: Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy.
1: Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing that all that was gonna happen to him came forward and he asked them, whom are you looking for? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus replied, I am he. Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they stepped back and they fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, whom are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those whom you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, and he struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? And so the soldiers, their officer, and the Jewish police arrested Jesus, and they bound him.
2: We're going to continue the story that Brian started from John chapter 18. Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter was standing outside at the gate. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out, spoke to the woman who guarded the gate, and brought Peter in. The woman said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing around it and warming themselves. Peter also was standing with them and warming himself. They asked him, You are not also one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priests, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, the cock crowed. The word of the Lord.
3: So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, if this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and charge him according to your law. The Jews replied, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, what is truth?
2: Our next scripture starts in Leviticus and then continues in our story in John. He shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots on the two goats one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? They shouted in reply, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a bandit. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they dressed him in a purple robe. They kept coming up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and striking him on the face.
1: So they took Jesus, and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side, with Jesus between them. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see who will get it. This was to fulfill what the scripture says, they divided my clothes among themselves And for my clothing, they cast lots. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus
0: were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head, and gave up his spirit. Every year, Christians all around the world gather together in their houses of worship to remember the day of Jesus' death. Christians label this particular day Good Friday. But I've always had a tough time with that, I'll be honest with you. I've been quite baffled by the name of Good Friday because the first word that comes to my mind when I think of an execution is definitely not the word good. The word that comes to my mind is, that's really bad. But looking back on it now, as I kind of go through and run through my mind, I ask myself the question, why? Why did we call this particular day Good Friday? And the general reason, I think, that most Christians give for Good Friday is that Jesus' death on the cross it ends up forgiving human beings of their sins. So I guess in a sense, it's good for us, bad for Jesus in some ways. But yet, at the same time, I look at this word good and I think, you know, I don't know if this word actually matches given the way we use it in our common vernacular today. So the word good, when we use it today, means positive or pleasant. So if I say She's a good person. Well, what I mean by that is that she has a positive or pleasant disposition. And so in this way, the term Good Friday, I think it may send the wrong message these days to people on the outside of the face. Because for those on the outside, what you have to realize is that they hear the term good and they assume that something positive or pleasant has happened when the exact opposite is true. And so when they find out that we're talking about Jesus' execution and torture, it can make us seem a little bit callous and barbaric, don't you think? Now, if you go back 50 years, what you find is actually the word good takes on a totally and completely different connotation. The word good 50 years ago It meant that something was morally right. So if I said 50 years ago, she's a good person, what I meant was that she is a morally upstanding individual. Now in this way, what this tells us is that this particular day, it has a certain moral quality to it. Would you agree that it has a moral quality to it? Yes, it does. So perhaps a better term, given the way we use the word good in our common vernacular, is not Good Friday, but Moral Friday. And so that begs the question, what exactly is so moral about Jesus' execution? And that's what I want to talk about with you this evening. That's the discussion that I want to have. What is the morality behind Jesus' death? Now, I think to begin this discussion, we have to acknowledge on a certain level that when we're talking about Jesus' death on the cross, most Christians don't like to think of it in terms of an execution, do we? I mean, that's what it was, no doubt about it. He was executed by the Roman government. But we like to think of it more in terms of a sacrifice. True? True. The reason why we like to think of this as a sacrifice is because of the laws that we find in the Old Testament. So these Old Testament laws, what they say is that if you want to be forgiven by God for your sins, then you need to take an animal to a priest and then that priest will take the animal into the temple and sacrifice, literally kill the animal and place it on an altar. And then, after having done that, you can be forgiven of your sins. Of course, the next time you sin, you have to go out and do it all over again and kill another animal. Now, I think it's very important to know that The Jews were not the only group of people who utilized animal sacrifice to worship their God. There were all kinds of different cultures that used animal sacrifice. And in fact, the Jews were kind of late to the game, to be perfectly honest with you. They borrowed this from other cultures. So this raises a really interesting question for me, which is why is it that these ancient cultures, why did they believe that killing an animal, sacrificing an animal, would result in you being forgiven. Why are those two things tied together? Now to understand the answer to this question, you have to understand how the ancients thought about the properties of blood. Now they had no idea how blood operated in the scientific way of things, the way that we know it today. They had no concept that the blood had white blood cells that fought off infection. Or that blood has hemoglobin that that takes the oxygen throughout our body. No concept of that. But what they did know and what they did understand is that your blood contained your life force. Because they had observed that you can lose a lot of different things on your body. You can lose hands. You can lose arms. You can lose legs. And you can still live. But if you lose all your blood, then you die. So if your blood contains all of your life force. Then if that blood gets tainted with sin, then your blood and your life together, you have to realize that what that does is it means that your life has been tainted. So think of it this way. If your blood is what gives you life, and then you sin, they believe that the sin had the ability to literally taint the blood. In a sense, it's like infecting it. So in the same way that we kind of understand this idea that viruses and bacteria can infect our blood, they understood that our blood could get infected with sin. Now the way that they understood you being forgiven is that you needed to get new, clean blood. Your blood needed to be cleansed, that's how you would be forgiven of your sin because if your blood contains your life force and your life force is tainted with sin, then you need that new blood, right? But the problem was they couldn't do blood transfusions, could they back then? They didn't even know what that was. And so they believed that by sacrificing an animal, you would transfer the sin from your blood to the blood of the animal. That's how they thought about it at the time. And therefore, you would have this new clean blood flowing through your body in a sense right? That animal takes the blame for the sin that you committed. This is kind of like the concept of a scapegoat, right? That's the idea behind it. But we read, you heard TC read it this evening, we actually read the scripture from the Old Testament about scapegoats. And scapegoats are actually very, very interesting. It's important to know this little factoid. So, It was expected that if you were an Israelite, that you would make sacrifices all the time for your individual sins. This was an expectation. But one day a year, it was known as the Day of Atonement. The priests would get together and they would forgive all the sins of the Israelite people as a corporate body. That's what they would do. They would forgive all the sins together. So here's the way that it worked. The priests would have two goats, and they would cast lots between them. That concept of casting lots, it's like flipping a coin in our world. And one goat, they would end up sacrificing it for the sins of the priests. Get rid of it. And the other goat, that would be the scapegoat. And the scapegoat would be kept alive, and the priests would pray a prayer over top of it, and then send that goat out into the wilderness. And what that goat carried on it was all of the sins of the Israelite, or as we would call them today, the Jewish people. Now this concept should sound very familiar to you, shouldn't it? Because it's exactly how we think about Jesus. Jesus is the scapegoat that allows the sins of humanity to be forgiven. We take our sins and we place them on him So we don't have to bear the burden. Now why I find this concept of the scapegoat to be so fascinating is because what it tells me is that these ancient people believed that your sins couldn't just disappear. That they had to be transferred from one place to another. Now does that sound strange to you? It's an interesting idea, isn't it? the idea that your sins had to be transferred from one place to another. But you know, it's not that strange. Because even though these people, they knew nothing about science, they had no concept of what science was at the time, they had tapped into a very important scientific principle in our world. This concept of transference, it undergirds our entire universe. You probably know it from science as the law of conservation of mass, And the idea is that all the matter in the universe, it remains constant. It remains constant. So even though matter might shift and change and transfer from one state to another, matter never disappears. So in this way, what you have to realize is that the universe tends toward a state of equilibrium. Let me give you an example of how this works in your life. So when you pass away, the atoms in your body, there's trillions and trillions of them. When you pass away, those atoms don't just disappear. The universe reconstitutes those atoms as something totally and completely different. Now the same concept applies to our sins. I think we all know intuitively that our sins, the mistakes, the wrongs that we have done, they don't just vanish into thin air. Indeed, these things, they ripple out beyond us, and they end up staying with people long after they've been committed. So when you hurt someone, when you cause them pain and suffering, the fact is that those wounds, they stay with people. Even though the event itself may be forgotten. They may not even remember what happened. The fact is, those things are deep inside their hearts. And you know how we know this to be true? Because when somebody hurts you, when somebody inflicts pain and suffering on you, we carry those things around like baggage. Now sometimes, that baggage, it feels tolerable. We feel like we can handle it. But other times, The baggage feels so heavy and so weighty that we feel as though it's going to crush us and we can barely live our lives. Now I think we all know that what we should be doing with this baggage is we should be letting go of it, right? Don't we all know that on some level or another? But for whatever reason, humans have a tough time doing that. We hold on to our baggage like it's hidden treasure And we'll only let go of it if there's somebody on the other side who's willing to take it from us. And what I find to be fascinating about the Christian faith and why I love the Christian faith so much is that Jesus is a safe space for us to give that baggage over. That Jesus is a scapegoat who's willing to take those burdens from us so we don't have to bear them ourselves. Now in saying this, I want to reiterate something that I've said many, many times in various services since I've been here, which is that I do not believe that God needed Jesus to die so that we could be forgiven of our sins. I don't believe that to be true. And the reason why is because I think God can do anything. I don't think God needs anything to happen for us to be forgiven. I don't place God in that box. But what I do believe to be true is that we need that transference. Because without it, we have trouble letting go of those things that we hold on to so deeply in our hearts. You see, did God create the universe? Did God create you? So, if the universe tends toward a state of equilibrium, then don't you tend towards a state of equilibrium? Yes, you do. We all desire that in our life. But the fact is, if we want that stasis, we need somebody on the other side to take it. We need somebody to transfer our sins over to. And the fact is, if there's nobody there, we will hold on to them. And so Jesus has become the way that many people in their lives, they are able to get into this state of equilibrium that seems so hard for us to grasp onto. Now I will tell you something, this idea that we attain equilibrium, that humans attain equilibrium through transference, this has totally and completely changed my understanding of why we celebrate Good Friday. It's totally transformed it for me. As I stated earlier, I don't believe we celebrate Good Friday and I don't think Jesus needed to die so that we could be forgiven. God could already do that for us. But the reason why Jesus' death is so important is so that we can accept God's forgiveness. God is out there saying, I wanna forgive you, I wanna forgive you, I wanna forgive you, and you say, no, I will do no such thing. I will not accept that from you. Because without somebody on the other side, without somebody there to take it, we are unwilling to transfer that to someone else. And so this, is where Good Friday obtains its moral quality. Jesus is like the magnet that sucks in all of that wrongdoing. All of those things that we've done in our lives, the things that we're ashamed of, the things that we don't like, all of that pain and suffering, Jesus says, bring it to me so that it doesn't land on someone else. Because let's be honest, guys. Let's be honest. Your sins have to land somewhere. You're going to put it on a scapegoat one way or another. And the fact is, Jesus is God's way of saying to us, bring it to me. So it doesn't have to land on somebody else. But here's the thing, we struggle with that, don't we? Our sins don't always land on Jesus. They don't. In fact, more often than not, all that horrible stuff inside of us, they end up on other people in the world. We look for other people to be our scapegoats so that they can take all of our disappointment, all of our frustration, all of our anger, all of our hate. And you can see this today. I mean, look at the world around us. You can see it on a macro level with discrimination, prejudice, racism. You can see it. When one group of people is suffering economically or they feel that they are being put down so that other people can prosper, what do they do? They blame somebody else. Well, if it wasn't for the Jews, or if it wasn't for Muslims, or if it wasn't for immigrants, or African Americans, or Chinese people, or Indians, if it wasn't for all of these people, I'd be in a much better place right now. So rather than take responsibility for their actions, and look in the mirror, And figure out, hey, they contributed to their own problems. They cast responsibility on someone else. But you want to know what the most beautiful thing is? About Jesus and his invitation to be our scapegoat. Jesus says to us, Now that you have cast all of your disappointment and your anger and your frustration on me. Now that you've done all that, let's take a look in the mirror and figure out how you can change, how you can be different, how you can be better than you are right now. Is that not one of the most difficult questions to ask? Oh, it absolutely is. I'm gonna tell you all something very, very important about my life. For a long time, I refused to take responsibility for my own issues. I blamed other people for my actions. All the time. People would come up to me and they would say, Alex, you are a very angry person. And if you are not careful, you are going to hurt someone very, very badly. And you know what my response was? Yeah, I'm an angry person. You would be too if you grew up the way I grew up. If you had a mother who was constantly deriding you, if you grew up with classmates who were bullying you all the time, yeah, you'd be upset too. So when you look at me, don't blame me for being the way that I am. Blame them. So by choosing to cast all of my blame on other people, by using them as scapegoats, I always had an excuse for my behavior. But what I didn't realize is that in blaming other people for my actions, I was just perpetuating the same behavior over and over and over again. You see, I didn't think that I could change and be different. And the fact is, I didn't want to change and be different. You see, by blaming other people, what you're saying is, I am the way that I am, and I'm never going to be any different than I am right now. What you see is what you get. Now, do you know how destructive that is? Do you know how badly that can ripple out and affect other people in the world? On a micro level, when we use scapegoats all the time to say, this is why I'm angry and upset and frustrated and disappointed, well, we just end up passing that hate on to the next generation. My mother, She was a very, very angry person. But she was that way because my grandmother mistreated her so badly. And so when I look at my mom, I understand why she was the way that she was. But with me, when she would lose her temper, she was teaching me how to be an angry person. She was teaching me to be more like herself. She was passing that seed of anger from one generation To the next. But thanks to Jesus' invitation to be the scapegoat for my anger, I saw a new way of being and I realized that I could change and I could be different. Long before my sons were ever born, I made a decision that I did not want them growing up in the same situation in which I grew up. I did not want them to be exposed to the same level of anger to which I was exposed as a child. I did not want to lose my temper with them all the time so they learned the same lessons from me that I learned from my mother. And so as a result, I came to Jesus and he said, take a look in the mirror and start taking responsibility for your actions. Yes, my mother did plant the seed of anger in my heart. No doubt about it but it is up to me, it is my choice, whether or not I allow that seed to grow. By using Jesus as my scapegoat, I came to a place where I realized that I didn't have to blame my mother for my actions anymore. I claimed my anger as my own, and I changed my ways. And I'm very happy to say that today, I don't have that level of anger I had more than a decade ago. And I'm so happy that my sons, they are not growing up in a household where they will have to use me as a scapegoat to justify their anger. Now, these things that I've learned from my life and these experiences, what I have come to is to realize that we all have to cast our burdens somewhere. We all need scapegoats. It's the truth. Because we have to transfer it from one place to another. And so the fact is that we are all like the priests that we read about in the book of Leviticus. We all have two choices. We have two scapegoats in front of us. We can choose to cast our burdens on the people around us, or we can cast our burdens on Jesus. But unlike the priests who cast lots, it's not a matter of fate. We're not flipping a coin. We do have a choice in the matter. And here is the choice. The choice is, you cast your burdens on the people who you love and who you care for. You make them the bearers of your guilt and your shame. You make them the bearers of your poor choices and your pain and your suffering. Or you choose to cast all of your burdens onto Jesus, who gladly welcomes them. We all need scapegoats in our lives. And let me tell you right now, Jesus wants to be yours. I want to end this evening with one of my favorite scriptures in the whole Bible. It's from Matthew 28 verses, or Matthew 11 verses 28 to 30. And in this particular passage, Jesus, I imagine he's talking to all these peasants And I can see him there speaking to them and they're just worn down and they've been working so hard in their lives and they just carry the weight of the world on their shoulders. And he says, Come to me, all that you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and I will give you rest for your soul." For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.